We're going to continue our Kingdom of Priests series this morning in the book of Leviticus. Uh, I don't know if you ever had a book that you read or had to read that either everybody else liked or maybe you were told was a classic, but for whatever reason, it just wasn't for you. I've had a few of those. I remember in junior high or high school, I had to read The Scarlet Letter. Uh, by, I think, Nathaniel Hawthorne. I don't know if you remember this book. Uh, I have tried uh, deeply to forget over the last couple of decades because I had a hard time with the book. I don't even think it's that long, but it felt like it was long, right? I had a hard time understanding the metaphors, had a hard time understanding what they were trying to say. Um, I became convinced that it was a classic because there were book critics who didn't understand it and decided it must be so profound it has to be a classic because we don't know what it says, right? So uh, I struggled with that book. Maybe you've had a book like that in your life as an adult once or twice. People have said, maybe you should go back and try it again. You might like it better as an adult. And I have said, I don't wish to, right? One of the advantages of being an adult is I don't have to read books I don't like anymore, right? So uh, if you've ever experienced that, my guess is that you may have a familiar feeling uh, as you look at the screen this morning and you see the word Leviticus on the screen. Because you may have that feeling of, I, I know I'm supposed to read this. I know it's part of the Bible. I know it's important, but I've tried to read it and it didn't go well, right? I'm fully aware that for some of you, you began the year in January with a read through the Bible in a year plan. And right about February, you hit Leviticus and your dream died, right? I realize that Leviticus is tough to read. Uh, I realize that you read it and you go, man, I don't know what any of this stuff has to do with me today, right? So you read about rules for priests, and I'm not a priest, and nor are you. Or you read about animals that are clean and unclean. You don't know why that's there. There are rules about uh, where you should go and when, and, and all of these feasts and festivals. And so a lot of people read Leviticus, and they go, I don't understand what's going on. Uh, to top it off, uh, I'm talking about holiness this morning, another topic that is unpopular, right? A lot of us go, I don't know exactly what that means, but the images that I have in my mind when I think about holiness are like an old guy in the desert with a white robe and a, a big beard, right? And a staff. And he says, repent, right? That's what I think of when I think of holiness, um, as Kenny and I were talking about songs to sing this week, we had a hard time finding recent songs about the holiness of God. There aren't a lot of them being written. The one that we found is about 250 years old, right? So there aren't a whole lot of popular songs about the holiness of God. We don't talk about it a lot. We may not even understand what it means. As I asked this week some of my Facebook friends to tell me, what do you think when you think about holiness? The two main ideas that they came up with, one was, I, I can't possibly be holy, only God is holy. When I think of holiness, people said, I think of God. I don't think of something that I can do, right? So holiness is unattainable. The other thing that came into people's minds was self-righteousness, right? So I think of holier than thou, a person who believes they're better than I am. That's a person who thinks they're holy. Right, so they may say, look, I don't, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't go to these kind of movies, whatever, I'm holy and you're not, right? So we think of holiness as something that is both unattainable and something that is kind of ugly, right? It's self-righteous. I want to talk about that this morning as we look at Leviticus. And the reason is because the Bible views holiness completely different from the way we tend to think about it. 
In fact, holiness is one of the most important concepts in the entire Bible. It's one of the most often repeated words in the entire Bible. If you read the Old Testament, you will find the words for holy and holiness more than 600 times in the Old Testament, a hundred times in Leviticus alone. And it's not just the Old Testament, by the way. If you read the New Testament, you're going to find the word holy more than 200 times in the New Testament. That's one of the most common words in the New Testament as well. In the entire Bible, you have the word holiness mentioned hundreds and hundreds of times. God is described as holy. Not only is God described as holy, but we are called to be holy as God is holy. One of the foundational principles behind the book of Leviticus is that God is saying to his people, I want you to be people who are set apart, who are holy like I am holy. You remember as we've talked about this concept of the kingdom of priests throughout the Pentateuch, Throughout Exodus and now in Leviticus, what we've talked about is God had said to the people of Israel, I want you all to be a people in the midst of all the other nations who live according to the way I call you to live, who are like me so that people around you, the other nations, can see who I am, right? So that's why God calls them to do what he calls them to do. And that's what we're going to see continued in the book of Leviticus this morning. And here's where I want to go for us, right? is that the concept of holiness is deeply important to our walk with God. Okay, here's what I mean. If you want to understand what it means to really know God deeply, and if you want to be a person who reflects God's character, if you want to be a person who is like Jesus, right? Every time you say, I want to be like Jesus, you are fundamentally expressing that you want to be holy. Because the character of God and the character of Jesus is holiness, right? So there is no effective Christian walk apart from holiness. It really matters. And so this morning I want to look at what what does it even mean, first of all? How do we do it? Why do we want to do it? And then we'll, we'll end with what happens when, not if, when we fail at holiness, Okay, but let me give just a little bit of context. You remember last week we talked about the golden calf incident, Exodus 32 to 34. And you remember at, at the golden, at, at Mount Sinai, when they build this golden calf, they dive into idolatry. And the idea is they are worshiping a version of God that they prefer. They're not worshiping the God who has revealed himself to them. They were worshiping their own version of God. That's idolatry, right? So God judges the people for their idolatry, disciplines them, but then he re- reinstitutes the covenant with them. Remember, Moses gets a new set of tablets. And then what happens in the remainder of the book of Exodus is God gives them instructions for the tabernacle and they build the tabernacle where the the Holy of Holies is, where the Ark of the Covenant is. They build the tabernacle. And then we get to the book of Leviticus. And in the book of Leviticus, you have a number of rules and regulations about how they're supposed to worship in the tabernacle, but then also how they're supposed to live in the land. So let me just quickly give you a 30,000-foot overview of the book of Leviticus, including where we're going to be today. So it starts out, after the tabernacle's built, it says, this is how you're going to offer sacrifices to, to God 
in the tabernacle. That's chapters 1 through 7. So you have sin offerings and guilt offerings and peace offerings and all of these offerings. And these are the types of animals you need to bring. This is what they need to be like. This is how the priests are to slaughter them and offer them, right? Then chapters 8 through 10, there are regulations for the priests. If the priests are the people who represent God in the tabernacle and then later in the temple, We're going to see they're called to be holy, especially holy. So God gives these regulations for the priests about who they can marry, for example, and where they're allowed to go and not allowed to go and what they have to wear. There are a lot of regulations for the priests. That's why, by the way, the book is called Leviticus. Levi was the tribe of the priests. It's named after the tribe of the priests. Then you got these rules about ritual purity. What can you eat? What can you not eat? What happens if you get sick or get leprosy or you are somehow ceremonially unclean? You touch a dead person or whatever it may be. Then there's a description of the Day of Atonement, what we know today as Yom Kippur, the high holy day in the nation of Israel, when uh, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and make an offering for the people once a year for the sins of the people over the previous year, right? That's the Day of Atonement. And then we hit the section we're in now, which is called the Holiness Code by people who study the book of Leviticus, Leviticus experts. I'm sure you can imagine that's a growing and thriving field, right? So these people say, this is called the holiness code. And the reason is because multiple times in chapter 17 to 26, we see this command, you are to be holy as I am holy. Chapter 19, right at the beginning of chapter 19. And then it appears again in chapter 20, chapter 21, chapter 26. We have also seen it back in chapter 11. Over and over and over again, you're to be holy as I am holy. All right, that's where where Leviticus 17 to 26 is going to take us. So I want to talk about this concept then this morning of holiness. First of all, what is it? Right, if we are to be holy as God is holy, what does it mean? Right, here's, here's how I'm going to define it, and I'm going to give you an illustration of it. To be holy is to be uncommon or other or set apart for a special purpose. Okay, so when we talk about holiness, a lot of times we think about what holiness means is I don't do certain things, right? So maybe I don't get drunk. I don't commit adultery. We maybe think about the Ten Commandments. If I obey those nine don'ts and the one do, right? Honor your father and mother. I am holy. Okay, but holiness is broader. Holiness actually says this. You are set apart from things that are common and you are set aside for those things that relate to God. Okay, so when we look at the scripture and we look at the holiness of God, to some extent, we can never fully uh, absorb or imitate the holiness of God. But when we talk about the holiness of God, what we mean is this. God is other. God is apart from us. God is greater than we are. Not only is he greater than we are, but he's greater than all of the other gods that people might worship in the universe, right? Remember, this is on the heels of them coming out of Egypt, right? Where Egypt worshiped this pantheon of gods. So to be holy is God's way of saying, I am greater. I am other. I am apart from everything else that you know or worship. Okay. First time we see the word holiness in the Bible actually happens in the book of Genesis. Genesis. Oh, actually, let me show you this first before I talk about Genesis. So when we talk about holiness, uh, this is an illustration. This is a picture from my house a couple of years ago. I came into the kitchen and my daughter had made these cookies. Okay. And you can see the note on the cookies. What does it say? For school, do not eat 
Daddy. All right? Now, uh, when I first read it, I was honestly a little offended because there are other people in the house besides me. I'm not the only one who ever eats cookies. Apparently, I am the most likely one to eat cookies that are set aside for school, right? But what is she saying? These cookies are not common cookies, right? These cookies, the the biblical word for this would be profane. Do not profane the cookies that I have made for school, right? Why? They're holy cookies. They're set apart for a particular purpose. They're not for you, daddy, for common use. They are for school, for holy use, right? That's holiness. They're set aside from common peasants like me, right? And they're set aside for special people at her school. All right, that's the idea of holiness. You get it? So the idea is they're set apart from something towards something. And again, as I mentioned, the first time we see the word holiness in the scripture, Genesis chapter three, look at this. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he ceased all the work that he had been doing in creation, right? Why is the seventh day holy? Because it's not like the other days, right? So there are seven days, and God says on those six days, you can do all the common stuff. You can work in your fields. You can uh, take care of certain aspects of, of raising your animals and your livestock, right? You can do all your work on the other six days. On the seventh day, it's holy. Why? It's set apart. What's it set apart for? You rest and you worship God. It's a special day, not a common day. It's a special day. That's holy. The next time we see the word holy is actually in the book of Exodus when Moses sees the burning bush. And God says to Moses, hey, Moses, don't come any closer. Don't approach any closer. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Right? Why is the ground holy? That seems odd, right? It's just dirt like all the other dirt. But the idea is it's not like all the other dirt. Why? Because God is there. Okay, that bush becomes holy, not because it was in and of itself a magical bush, but because God's presence is revealed in that bush and around that bush. And so God says, Moses, I want you to understand there's a difference between you and me. Okay, there's always going to be a distance between you and God because God is other, God is greater, God is apart. And anything God touches or comes near, therefore becomes holy, set apart reserved for God's purposes, right? That's the concept of holiness. This is why often when God talks about his holiness, it's also talked about in light of his exclusivity. That is, he is holy in light of the fact that he is the only God. Leviticus chapter 11, for I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God, and you are to be holy because I am holy, right? Why is God holy? Because he's the only one. There's no other God like him. He's not like the gods of Egypt. In fact, he defeated the gods of Egypt and he brought you out from Egypt. So God is holy. God is set apart. And then he says, I want you to be holy, right? And why are we called to be holy? We are called to be holy because God is holy. Here's what he's getting at. Because God is holy, he wants us to be like him. And as we become more like his character, then we represent him. 
other people can see who God is. Remember, the idea of the nation of Israel was never that only the nation of Israel would dwell in the land forever and there would never be anybody else involved from the other nations, right? The idea was that all of the nations would be blessed through the nation of Israel. That was God's promise to Abraham. How does that happen? Well, as the nation of Israel engages in serving God, in worshiping God, in obeying God, as they become holy, the rest of the nations are going to see the holiness of God. God says, if there's one thing I want you to reflect about me, one aspect of my character, it is holy, right? What we're going to see is holiness is going to encompass everything that they do. How important is the holiness of God? Well, it's so important that it, th- this idea of the holiness of God, it is used more often than the scripture talks about things like God's love, things like God's kindness, right? It's used as this overarching depiction of who God is. In fact, if you were in the throne room of God today, you would see what Isaiah saw when he was in the throne room of God. I want you to see this. We get a picture in Isaiah chapter 6 of how important the holiness of God is. It says, seraphs stood over him. That is, these angels, these burning angels stood over him. Each one had six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And they used the remaining two to fly. They called out to one another, holy Holy, holy is the Lord who commands armies. His majestic splendor fills the entire earth. And then in Revelation, John saw the same thing. Each one of the four living creatures had six wings and was full of eyes all around and inside. They never rest day or night saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the all-powerful or the almighty, as we sang it earlier, who was and who is and who is still to come. And then they say it and then they say it again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And then they say it again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who was and who is and who is to come. I thought about asking Kenny to sing the chorus 1700 times this morning so we could get an idea of how this would sound, right? You would begin to feel uncomfortable, but the idea is this. That's their only job, right? God is so holy that he has a team of angels whose only job is they fly around and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And they do it again and again and again and again forever and ever and ever. Why do they say it three times in every chorus? Because in the Hebrew language of the Old Testament, if you want to like, capitalize something or bold it or put it in italics or say this really matters, you know what you do? You say it again, right? So if I think you are really nice, I would say you are nice, nice. If I think you're really, really nice, I might say you are nice, nice, nice. God is holy, holy, holy. See that? It defines him so deeply. And so these angels, they fly around all day and night, all the time. Holy, holy, holy. So God says, because this is who I am, that's who I want you to be. Now, you're never going to approach the holiness of God, right? We know that. None of us will ever be as holy as God. But God says, to the extent that a human being can imitate my holiness, I want you to imitate my holiness. Why? Because you're my people and you're made to be like me. You're made to reflect me. Holiness ought to be a part of who you are as a human being because God who made us is holy. A number of years ago, when I was actually when I was a kid, 
I remember we, we went through this season where he had a cat. The cat's name was Butterball. And Butterball had several litters of kittens kind of right in a row. And I remember one day we had this one litter of kittens before it was weaned and we had given them all away. I walked into the garage one day and I saw that Butterball had grabbed a bird from outside and she had dragged the bird into the garage and she had set it down in the garage. I don't remember if the bird was dead or just stunned. But what I remember is when I walked in, by the time I got there, Butterball was there with the bird and there was a little circle of kittens around her and the bird. And what Butterball proceeded to do is she would pounce at the bird and then back up. And then one of the kittens would pounce at the bird and then back up. And around the circle, they went and they practiced pouncing on this little bird. It was both brutal and extremely cute at the same time. But what was she doing? She was saying, I am a hunter. Right now, we fed her from a can, so she didn't really need to hunt, right? But she was saying, I am a hunter. That's, that's who we are. We are cats. We hunt birds and mice. So you will be hunters. That's what we're made for. I was made to hunt. You're made to hunt. So you're going to learn how to do it. God says, I am holy. It's who I am. It's in your blood. You're made to be holy. That's what you're designed for, despite the reality of sin. There may be another way that you frame this even in your own house. You may have values for your kids, if you're a parent, right, where you say, these are the types of things that we do as a family in our household, right? So it may be your kid sasses you for some reason when you tell them to go clean their room. And what do you say? You go, look, we don't do that in our family. Why? Because we are Mortons, right? Mortons act respectfully to other people. Now, there may be some other family out there, maybe all your friends, the Smiths or whatever, they teach their kids to be disrespectful. But we are Mortons, and so we are respectful. We are honest, right? You see that? Because this is who we are. You are called to that standard because you carry our name. That's what God is saying. You are to be holy, Israel, because you carry my name. Because I am holy, and I want the nations to know who I am. Right? That's the concept of holiness. God is set apart. And so God is going to say, I want you to set yourself apart from sin. Set yourself apart from idolatry, right? The idea of holiness is not simply that I can say, look, I'm better than other people. Nor is the idea behind holiness that I can say in some way, I can earn God's approval or God's favor. We can't do that, right? We know that we need forgiveness of our sin because all of us have sinned. But instead, the idea of holiness is God saying, look, if you're my people, I want you to reflect me. I want you to be like me because I want other people to know me. And so he says to Israel, I want the nations to know me. So you be holy as I am holy. And then Leviticus 17 to 26 then is going to dive into this question of how. What does holiness look like? Right now, we're going to see in Leviticus, there are a bunch of different laws. This is usually where people get bogged down, right? There are all of these laws. Some of them make sense to us. Some of them we go, okay, yes, don't commit adultery, uh, whatever it may be. Others of them we go, okay, there's these weird laws about like, don't wear clothing of mixed threads, right? And there's all, they're all mixed in together. And so we tend to get bogged down in the details, right? I want to remind us, we've talked about this in previous weeks. Remember the nation of Israel, 
at this stage in its history. They are a nation, right? They need a government. They need laws. But they are also a nation under God. And they are meant at this particular period in history to reflect God and especially to reflect God in opposition to or over against all of the other nations around them, right? So a lot of these laws don't make sense to us, but in the context of a pagan ancient culture where idolatry was practiced and where some of what is forbidden here was practiced in the context especially of idol worship, it made a lot of sense. Okay, but I'm going to break it down into categories so we kind of understand the categories of holiness that God approaches with his people. How do we pursue holiness? First of all, we're going to see Leviticus 17 and then chapters 21 to 22. We pursue holiness in the way that we worship. We pursue holiness in the way that we worship. Chapter 17 begins, first of all, with a statement to the nation of Israel. And essentially it is this. You can't just make a, an offering or a sacrifice wherever you want, however you want. Okay, you, you, if you kill an animal to sacrifice it, you have to do that in the tabernacle where God has said you can worship, right? And the reason is because people had a tendency, uh, you know, if they're living a long ways away, especially once they get in the land, they're living a long ways away from Jerusalem. They go, look, I don't want to travel all the way to Jerusalem for Passover or whatever it may be. So I will just set up a little altar closer to my house and I'll worship God right here. Okay, and that's what they started doing later on in the history of Israel. The problem with that is not only did they begin to worship God wherever they wanted, they also worshiped God however they wanted, and they began to get into idolatry, which is they created a God that they really liked that they could worship however they wanted. Okay, and so God right away, he says, look, there is a way to worship because I am God, right? Only I am God. And I want you to say, speak, think, and do those things that are consistent with my character, right? And so then in chapters 21 to 22, there are these regulations for the priests who serve in the tabernacle. Remember, the presence of God dwelled in a special way in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies. So the priests are in proximity to the holiness of God. And so what they wear makes a difference. Who they marry makes a difference. They have higher standards than the rest of the people because the closer they are to the holiness of God, the more they're called to be set apart. All right? So God would say to the priests, the priests shall be holy to their God and shall not profane the name of their God. For they offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God. Therefore, they shall be holy. So God says, I want you to be holy or set apart in the way you worship. Don't worship like the nations around you, but worship in the way I tell you. He's also going to say, I want you to pursue holiness with your body. Okay, there's a couple of uh, chapters in Leviticus that deal with, first of all, chapter 11, what they eat. All right, and there are these food regulations. Some of you have, have read these, so they're not allowed to eat rabbits. They're not allowed to eat pigs, but they are allowed to eat uh, cows. There's a whole list of birds you can eat and birds you cannot eat, right? So there are these food regulations, and a lot of people have argued over the centuries about why certain animals are considered clean and others are unclean. The bottom line is nobody knows for sure because the scripture doesn't tell us for sure. But what is clear is this, that God seems to be saying to them, even what you eat, I want you to think about it in terms of holiness. That is, I want you, Israel, to eat and to drink in a way that distinguishes you from the nations around you because I want you to be set apart to me. So that every time you sit down at the table, 
You sit down at the table both in gratitude for what God has given, but also recognizing we're eating this menu because we are submissive to God. Right? Paul would bring in this principle somewhat later in 1 Corinthians to say, look, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is, everything that you do falls under the sphere of God's authority. Okay, chapter 18 of Leviticus has a list of commands about sexual purity, essentially uh, who you can and cannot have sex with. And there's a long, it's a, it, there's a lot there, right? So there are prohibitions against things like adultery and incest and homosexual behavior and all of these things. And again, the idea being that God has made you for a purpose, body and spirit. And deviating from that, that's what the nations do. That's what the pagans do. But I want you to be set apart with your body for my purposes. So the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. And then he goes on with this list of sexual prohibitions. And again, the fundamental issue is this, that because of his holiness, God is a God of faithfulness and integrity, right? And the sexual practices of the Egyptians and the nations around them were not practices of faithfulness and integrity that represented the character of God. And so God says, I want you to be set apart from those things and set aside to me whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do with your body. We pursue holiness, thirdly, with our relationships. I love chapter 19 of Leviticus. Jesus would quote part of chapter 19 in his own ministry during his own life. Chapter 19, verse 18, you will recognize this. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Right? That, that last part, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says there are two really important commands. You remember them? Love God first. And then the second, he says, is like it. The second flows from it. It's not that different from it. It is you love your neighbor as yourself. Right? The idea, again, is this. Because God is holy, he's called you to be holy. He's called you to be like him. What is God like? God is kind. God is gracious. God loves others. And so you are called to love your neighbor as yourself because that fits with the character of God, right? So chapter 19 of Leviticus has a number of laws that relate to how we treat others, like honor the aged. It actually says stand up in their presence. Don't cheat people in terms of finances. Take care of the disabled, the deaf, the blind. That's verse 14. Take care of strangers, those from other nations who come to live with you. It says, treat them as if they're one of you, right? And it goes on, pay your workers as soon as you possibly can. That's verse 13. Don't rob your workers. Leave a portion of your crops behind for the poor. In other words, there are these relational commands that deal with God as a person of kindness, or a God of kindness and grace, a God of love who wants everybody to know him. So in your relationships, you treat others accordingly. 
with our relationships, with our time. Verse 23 gives sort of the calendar for the year in terms of the Sabbath and then the Sabbath year every seven years where they were to let the land rest and then the Jubilee year every 49 years where the land would revert to its original owner. Every year there was a cycle of feasts and the idea is that even as you plan out your calendar, right? Uh, My wife and I sit down on Sunday night and we plan out our calendar for the week. You may do something similar. God says, even as you sit down, January 1st, and you go, what is my calendar? What is my agenda? You need to recognize that you are following God's agenda, right? Even your time has to flow according to God's plan because you are set apart from common things and set aside to God. Uh, Brian is going to come in a couple weeks, Brian Fisher, and talk about the feasts of Israel. So I'm not going to go into detail on those today. And then with our money, with our possessions. Again, you have these commands about how you uh, treat those who are under your employ, but also, interestingly, in chapter 25, you have this discussion of the year of Jubilee. And the idea is you have been given land by God, right? It's not your land. In fact, God is going to say this, Leviticus 25, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity. Why? For the land is mine. In other words, it's not your land. For you are strangers and sojourners with me, right? And God says, I've given you this land as a stewardship. So what would happen is every 49 years, see, the land had to revert to its ancestral ownership. Okay, so if you think about it this way, if somebody went into debt, right, they couldn't afford to pay their bills, one way in the ancient world they could deal with that is they could either essentially sell themselves into slavery or they could go to someone and say, hey, will you pay me money to lease out the land that I own, that I inherited from my father and grandfather, right? So somebody would pay them, they would get the land, but here was the key. You were really only ever leasing the land because at the end of those 49 years, you had to give it back to the family of the person you originally leased it from. And the idea is this, that nobody, no family would find themselves in permanent poverty because of the bad decisions of a grandfather or a great-grandfather. Right? That there would be no family in Israel that was permanently left out of an inheritance. Because God says, it's not really your land. It's my land. It's set aside for my purposes, for my nation. Right? Now, the bad news is they didn't ever really observe that. And you find that when they go into exile. Right? But here's the main point I want to make. A lot of rules, a lot of laws, but here's the main point I want to make as we look at it. When God talks about holiness... It includes every aspect of life. There's no such thing as simply a private sin, but at the same time, holiness isn't only about personal purity either, right? So we tend to think about, when we think about sin today, especially in our culture, we tend to think, you know, there are some sins that they don't really hurt anybody, right? They're in private. Nobody else is involved, Nobody else is hurt. I think we, especially in our culture, we think about sexual sin that way, right? What I do uh, in my own home behind closed doors, that's only my business. It doesn't affect anybody else, right? Or maybe we think about that when it comes to things like substance abuse or alcohol. We go, look, who cares what I do in my own home as long as nobody else is involved, right? But the Bible looks at it very differently. The Bible says that because we live in a community with other people, and as Christians that is true, and certainly as people in this world that is true, and it was true of Israel, the idea is because you live in a community, anything that you do that pulls you away from the holiness of God. 
actually does affect other people, right? So the way that I view sexuality in private, that'll affect my relationships, either now or in the future or both, right? So it could affect and will affect the way I approach my spouse or the way I view those in my community of the opposite sex, right? The way that I approach eating and drinking could have an impact if I am not able to fully follow God and be used as he's called me because I am engaged in some sin that dulls my mind, right? So when the scripture talks about drunkenness, for example, the idea is it dulls your mind, it dulls your spirit, and now there's a member of God's community that isn't functioning in the way that God designed them, and that hurts everybody. You see that? So there is no such thing as a private sin. And also the idea biblically is actually that sin and unholiness, they have a contagious effect. The way that I treat others, the way that I view others, it tends to catch. And others tend to catch the way that you or I approach our relationship with God, right? If we are holy, God says, then the nations will see it and they will be holy. But if you are unholy, they're going to have a tendency to want to walk away from God. Because why would you come to a nation of people who don't obey their God, right? You see, holiness has a contagious effect. A couple of weeks ago, uh, my son and a couple of neighborhood friends were playing down at a creek in our neighborhood, and somehow they all got poison ivy, right? And if you've ever had poison ivy, you know that it begins on one spot, and then it quickly spreads its way throughout your entire body as you scratch at it, and then you scratch here, and you scratch here, right? And all of a sudden, you are covered in it. But if you also don't clean yourself off well that first day or two you get poison ivy, you can give it to others, right? So I could touch you, and you would also get the poison ivy, right? So apparently, I learned this this week, it's not contagious like for a long time. If you wash off, you wash off all of that plant oil, nobody else is going to catch it from you if, you if you touch them, right? But uh, uh, my son's siblings, my daughters, didn't really know this. And so for the last week or so, they've been treating him a bit like a leper, right? So everywhere that he goes, they wipe up behind him. If he touches the computer, they bring wipes and they're cleaning it up, right? If he touches them, they go and they wash themselves off. And finally, he just got so frustrated with this. He's like, no, I'm not contagious anymore. Stop treating me that way, right? But where are they coming from? Right, if I touch the uncleanness of your body, it will catch on to me. Right? And you see actually this principle work its way out in in the law, right? So leprosy itself actually becomes a symbol or a metaphor of sin to some degree because it catches. And so you have to be cleansed. Leaven will become a symbol like this. You put a little bit of leaven in the bread, what happens? It filters through all of the bread. Right? And so the idea is God is holy, and so we stay far away from those things that are unholy. And when we encounter or engage in those things that are unholy, we have to clean up and offer a sacrifice. Because there's no such thing as a private sin. But at the same time, sin is much more, I mean, holiness is much more than just personal purity at the same time. Notice this, holiness includes how I treat you and how you treat me. Right? We think about holiness and love, in fact, often as opposites. Well, God is really holy, but I know he loves us too. No, God loves us because he's holy. Right? You see that? Because God is holy, because God is set apart, he is so much greater than all of the other gods of the nations that he loves perfectly 
and he's perfectly faithful. And so God says, I call you to be holy because that's my character because I am holy. Right? So then here's the real question when we think about holiness. Right? If it's that all-encompassing and it's that great, what do we do when we fail? Right? It should say, not if we fail, when we fail. As you look at the law, there are real consequences for disobedience. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. That's Leviticus 26. But then he goes on, he says, but if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consumes the eyes and makes the heart ache, and you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it, right? And that's just the beginning of the curses. There are more in Deuteronomy 28 to 30 as well. And the idea is if you obey Israel, you will be blessed. If you disobey, there will be curses, right? And the idea was not that obedience would lead them to eternal life, but instead God was so invested in them representing him as this nation that there were consequences if they didn't, right? But the problem is they didn't, right? They never did it. They disobeyed at every turn. They didn't let the land keep its Sabbath. They engaged in idolatry. They built uh, altars, where they offered animals wherever they pleased. In the, in the prophets, it says they did it under every green tree and on every high hill. They proliferated idolatry and they sinned against God and they stole from the poor and they didn't treat people like God wanted them to treat people. And so the prophets begin to prophesy that judgment is coming and judgment did come when the nation of Israel is exiled to Babylon. And so just like us, they find themselves in a place of of failure. And it's then that Jeremiah offers this hope. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they what? They broke it. They didn't keep it. They weren't holy. And he says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. In other words, he says, I'm going to write a whole new covenant. Not like the one you broke, but I'm going to give you a new one where I will forgive your sin. I will cleanse you once and for all, right? Not through a ritual bath, not through an offering, but once and for all, I will cleanse you and then I will write the law on your heart so you can be holy through the power of my law or my spirit inside of you. Okay, so then you fast forward to the New Testament and you see Jesus at the Last Supper sitting with the disciples and as he takes the cup on the day he's going to die for our sins and he says, this cup that is poured out for you, what is it? It's the new covenant in my blood. Jesus said, where the day after day after day after day offerings of the bulls and goats, could not do the job. My blood does the job. He says, I'll cleanse you once for all. I will make you holy. I will set you apart for God's purposes. So that Hebrews chapter 9 would later say, therefore Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them, 
from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus took the penalty of our disobedience of God's law on himself. He took our death and he rose again. And he wrote out a new covenant. And the new covenant says that all who trust in Jesus Christ not only can be cleansed of their unholiness once and for all, but actually are now empowered by the Spirit of God to obey. To not only be holy because Jesus has cleansed us, but since the Spirit lives in us, we can now walk in holiness. So that then when you're in the New Testament and you see this command pop up again in 1 Peter, it says this, As he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. We should recognize that by now. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He says, where the offerings of the tabernacle failed, Jesus succeeded. And he washed you clean and he delivered you. And now Peter says the same thing. He says, you be holy because God is holy. You're not holy to be better than others. You're not holy because you need to earn God's favor. You're holy because you have been purchased and now set apart from sin and set aside for the glory of God. And he says, now you walk in the reality of the spirit that dwells within you, right? This is why we don't have a list of laws today in the same way that the nation of Israel had one. All right, the reason is because the idea is the spirit of God lives in us. Now, what's interesting is much of the law of the Old Testament is repeated in the New Testament, of course, right? We're still not supposed to steal, still not supposed to kill people or commit adultery or or all of those things. Our minds and hearts are set apart for God, right? But the idea is that's because that's the character of God, right? God is faithful. God is kind. God is good. God is holy. So we are called to be that way, not to fulfill a list of obligations, but because the Spirit lives in us and empowers us to do His will. And so we follow the law of the Spirit, as Paul would say in Romans 8. Right? And that's our goal. We say, because Jesus has set me free from sin and death, I want to reflect him to be holy so the world can see the holiness and the love of God. That's why holiness matters. So quickly then as we close, let me ask us a few questions. One, where does your life fall short of God's holiness? Now, if you're like me, you say everywhere, Right? I'm never going to be as holy as God, right? But it may be that you have one or two areas of your life where you say, you know, I know that I repeatedly fail here. And I know that it's affecting my relationships. I know that it's affecting my worship of God. I know it's affecting those around me in the church. Where is that area or areas where you say, my life falls short and I need the help of God through his spirit to do better? And so we pray for help. We say, God, if the Spirit of God lives within us, give us the strength to obey. And then I want to offer one last suggestion as we close for developing new habits through the power of God as we pray for help. Here's what I want to challenge you to do. You say, you know what, I, I know, I know there's an area, something I, I 
think about, something I look at, some way I speak to my family or some way that I lack holiness in my life. And it's a habit. It's not that I'm trying to do it, right? It's just that these habits sneak up on me. Here's what I'm going to suggest is find a notebook this week or a journal or maybe even do this if you've got a note app in your phone. Every time your mind turns toward that pattern of unholiness and you're tempted toward it, here's what I want you to do. Just just make a mark, right? Some mark that you know what it means. Nobody else has to know what it means. You just make a mark in that phone or on that journal or whatever it is. That's all you got to do. Make a mark. And then as you make that mark, you say, God, give me the strength to pursue holiness. And then the next time it pops up, whether it's in a day or a week or 10 minutes, you make a mark and you become aware of these patterns in your life. And with each awareness of it. It's not that you say, you know what, I'm just going to dig in. I'm going to try harder. But instead you say, God, I need your strength right now in this moment. And we begin to develop new habits of holiness. Again, not so we can prove how great we are. Not so we can earn God's favor, but so we can glorify God and represent him as he's called us to do. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for your word. And we're grateful for this time. We are in awe of your holiness and we find ourselves also intimidated by it and convicted by it. And Father, even perhaps ashamed of our failure. And so we praise you for the forgiveness that you have offered and given in Jesus. Lord, I pray if there are any in this room who don't know you through Jesus that today they would receive the forgiveness and eternal life that he offers by believing in, in him. Father, for those of us who know you, I pray you would help us walk in holiness. Father, I pray that you would help us through your spirit's power to develop habits of holiness that will reflect to the world who you are. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.